seated. Uh, thank you guys for leading worship today. Um, you know, if this was a movie, I'd, I'd be mad at Kenny right now for all the spoilers he just gave, you know. But, uh, you know, this is the gospel, so you can't be hit with it enough, different angles. And uh, we are talking from uh, the book of Peter this morning in a series that I have labeled the chaotic, reckless pretzel series of Pastor Scott and Pastor Greg's bad planning. The Bible tells us that God is not the author of confusion, but sometimes pastors are. And so, got to apologize once again. We have really just twisted series after series over one another, not concluded one, started another, concluded the last one, picked up where we left off, and that's just been going on for weeks. But I think it ends today. So we can all be happy about that. Second Peter, I started a few weeks back and had to take a brief hiatus while Pastor Scott concluded his series last week. And then I'm concluding this one today. We're going to get through chapter three. And uh, then I think we'll be back to good planning, hopefully. Crossing my fingers on that one. Uh, but today we are looking at Second Peter chapter three. But before we get into it, I just want to give you a review because it's been weeks, and some of us don't remember what happened yesterday, much less three or four weeks ago. And so when we got into Second Peter, the first chapter really emphasized to the believer, the recipients of this letter, that Christ is sufficient for our salvation. There is no other thing that you need to seek when it comes to salvation. Christ and Christ alone is the answer for that. You cannot work yourself into salvation. You cannot do enough good deeds. You cannot pray enough, go to church enough, give enough. There's nothing that you can add to it. You bring nothing to the table. The Bible says you're spiritually dead, and Peter tells us that it is through Christ and Christ alone that you are saved. But that doesn't mean that you're lazy as a Christian, because Peter goes on, stirring you up to do good works. And so he tells the believer to be active. And then he tells you that your faith is verified through your good works. So the more that you're working for Christ, that is demonstrating the faith that you have. Because you believe in Christ, you are being propelled and compelled to do good works. And then he goes on to encourage the believers that these are reminders, and he tells them to be stirred up and to remember the things that they had been taught. Christianity is not about coming to church every Sunday and learning something brand new that you've never heard before. It's about coming and sitting and hearing the good old story that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And you're probably going to get told the same thing week after week after week, maybe from a different vantage point. Maybe you'll grab a new nugget, something you haven't heard before, but that's not why you're here, to get something new. You're here to get something old and something true and something faithful that will save you from your sins. And that is why we're here this morning. Uh, and Peter encourages them to keep reminding themselves of those things. And then finally, he turns you to the word of God and he says, there are a lot of false prophets out there. So you need to cling to the word of God that came through the prophets because it is tried and true. And even though the world changes around us and their version of truth keeps swirling around us and what's right today will be wrong tomorrow and vice versa. God's word is the same yesterday, today and forever. Christ is, God is, and they remain faithful. So be faithful to them through study of the scriptures. He goes to chapter 2 and spends a whole chapter on false prophets. And he tells you what to beware of. 
what kind of message they have, what their method is, what their motive is. And he continues to warn the believers that they could easily be entangled and ensnared in the lies and deceit that comes from the mouth of false prophets. And so he warns the church, as I warn you today, that there are other competing worldviews out there And the world gangs up on you as a believer and says that your version of truth is wrong. But I'm telling you, it's a lie. It is deceit and it is undermining God's word. So let God's word always be your truth. Even if everybody around you calls you crazy, even if they say that you've been duped and fooled, let God be true and every man a liar. And that brings us to chapter 3. After Peter deals with all these false prophets and deals with their version of the truth, uh, he gets into chapter 3, and I want to start out by reading this. Stand with me, let's read, and then we'll pray, and then you can have a seat again. It says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. And Lord, that you would just use me as a vessel. Let me communicate clearly what you have intended for Bible readers and Bible believers to take away from this passage. Let me not input anything of my own opinion, uh, but Lord, to simply convey truth. Father, I pray that you would stir us up and that you would guide us into righteousness uh, for your name's sake. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I stopped mid-sentence as I was reading that because the theme of this entire chapter really hinges upon those words there. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. And the name of this sermon today is a reminder to remember. Because that's what Peter's doing, which is a strange thing, right? If I remembered, I wouldn't need reminded, but he's reminding you to remember because we need that a lot, right? You put the cake in the oven, it's only going to be in there for 10 minutes. You need a reminder to remember to pull that out or you'll leave it in there for days. The only other reminder is going to be the smoke filling the house later. And so we need a reminder. I'm all the time saying, hey, Siri. She didn't hear me. Okay, good. Because I don't want her to interrupt this sermon. We're all the time telling her to set a a note to remind you to do something. Remind me to get up in the morning. Remind me to go to work. Remind me to put my left sock on. We need reminders because there's so much going on, we can become quite forgetful. Well, if it's important to pull the cake out of the oven, it's much more important to apply God's word to our lives and to embrace the truth of Scripture. And so we look at the passages here as another way of saying, remember. Remember the old truths. Be reminded of them day in and day out. It's not something new that's always coming at you, but something that you need to be refreshed on. And it will benefit you the same way that food benefits you, your physical body. You may sit down to eggs and bacon again tomorrow morning, and you've had eggs and bacon a billion times, but eggs and bacon is still going to give you the protein you need to get through another day. And God's reminders are the way that you spiritually are going to work your way through this life until you meet him in glory. And so I've got four points to break down this chapter this morning. And the first one is that we should be reminded to remember 
the prophetic predictions. The prophetic predictions. He said here, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with the water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The prophetic predictions of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament have been put down to remind the people of God that there are people in the world who scoff and ridicule the promises of God. So remember the prophetic predictions because there is nothing new under the sun. It is not a new thing that people come on the scene and say God's word is a bunch of baloney. It's not anything new that people come on the scene and try to poke holes in the arguments for God or the arguments for uh, Christianity and that a person named Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. It is nothing new. This is the kind of thing that Satan has used from the beginning. You go all the way back to Genesis and he shows up and he tells Adam and Eve that God's word was wrong. He says, no, you won't die if you eat that. And then they ate it and then they died. They died spiritually and continue to die physically to this day. Because God's word was true. But Satan came as a scoffer of God's word. And then we have other occurrences. In the day of Noah, people scoffed that God would destroy the earth. Uh, people come in the day of the prophet scoffing at God's claim that judgment was coming. And so Peter reminds us here that scoffers are coming and doubting. In this instance, the day of the Lord. And they're doubting it today. If they doubted it 60 years after Jesus died and rose again, they're certainly doubting it 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose again. Christians have been calling it the last day or the end of time since the first century. And here we are 2,000 years later still clinging to this hope and embracing the fact that Jesus could come at any minute and that he is indeed coming again. And so you can bet there are people laughing scoffing, mocking, ridiculing this idea that a 2,000-year-old dead guy is going to come back and save us all and make the world right. That's the belief that Christians hold to. And I encourage you to grasp onto it like never before because there's an argument for it. First off, it's not new. People have always scoffed. Malachi 2.17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, in Malachi's day, a lot of evil was going on. There was a lot of, a lot of bad things happening. And so people started to doubt the presence and existence of God. And so the scoffers said, where is God? 
Where is God? Where is his showing up to make things right? And God was not delighted in the fact that they were questioning him. And so he uses the prophet Malachi to bring condemnation and preach judgment against those people. Ezekiel 12, 22 says, Son of man, what is the proverb that you have about the land of Israel, saying the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? The people in Ezekiel's day had doubted that God was actually going to bring judgment. The prophets lived in this time period where uh, the Israelites and the southern kingdom Judah, they were uh, being told that God was going to bring judgment and that their nations were going to be destroyed and that the temple was going to be brought down and that they were going to be carried off into captivity. And they began mocking those prophets, saying, where is it? Where is it? We're fine. We're secure until the day that it actually happened. And then people like Ezekiel were carried away into captivity. People like Daniel were carried away into captivity. You can't forget the fact that God's promises have come true time and time again. And so Peter directs your attention back to the prophets of old, back to the predictions of old, and says, look, they've come true before, they'll come true again. Yeah, Jesus hasn't shown up and 2,000 years have gone by, but he's still coming. That doesn't mean that God told a lie when he said he was sending his son. It does not mean that Jesus made a faux pas when he predicted that he would come again for his people. Jesus is coming soon, as we just sang. We wait, we wait for you, but Jesus is coming soon. Peter calls out the foolishness of those scoffers in this passage. He says here, in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're stating here that Jesus isn't coming because Jesus hasn't come yet, which is really bad logic, by the way, is that if Jesus hasn't come over years and years and years, then Jesus isn't going to come. If the world has continued to spin and people have continued to live out their lives, then the world will continue to spin and people will continue to live out their lives. That's the logic they're using. Uh, there's like a, a fancy word for that, like uniformitarianism or something like that, that, that is a belief that things will continue in uniform pattern as they always have on and on and on and on. And so these false prophets and these scoffers were buying into this lie that because God has not shown himself in that way by sending his son, that he's not going to. And so Peter brings a friendly reminder here. Not so friendly, actually. But he says in verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. Deliberately, not accidentally. They deliberately, intentionally overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So he brings them all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And he says, oh yeah, you believe the world has always continued the same way and that God's not been involved? You see, he's dealing with what we would call in today's time deists. They didn't doubt God existed. But they believed that God sort of created the world, set it in motion, you know, put gravity in there and inertia and all these laws of centripetal force and all that, set it in motion, 
and then walks away from it and then just sits and watches. That's the God they believed in. They didn't believe in Peter's God. They didn't believe in the God that you and I embrace as Bible believers. We believe that God is not only transcendent, but is imminent, and he's involved in his creation. And that he steps in and he does things in his creation, and he continues to work in creation throughout history. But the scoffers of Peter's day did not buy into that. They say it's always been going on the same. God set it in motion, and now it just works its way out. And Peter says, let's take a look at your little theory. And he takes him back to Genesis 1 and says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The beginning of creation, we see darkness and the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. There is nothing but dark, watery chaos. And God didn't leave it at that. It didn't continue on in the same way as it always did. But the Spirit of God, the hand of God, moved upon the face of the waters and brought form and structure and purpose and life into this watery chaos. He brought organization into this watery chaos. And so don't tell Peter that God is not involved in his creation because he is. He shows up there and he makes something from nothing. And it's glorious. The prophets, false prophets, have forgotten that. And Peter goes on to say, not only that, but in verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He said, you've forgotten, scoffers, that in the Bible, the people got evil and they corrupted God's good world. And when they corrupted it with sin and sin saturated the planet, God did something about it. He didn't sit back like a deist God and watch it unfold, watch people hurt one another and mistreat one another and watch the injustice spread throughout the land. No, he steps into the timeline of creation and he actually brings about a worldwide flood so that justice could be shown. He brought judgment upon those who judgment was due. And so the earth perished by the same thing that it was created by, water and God's word. And so through the word of God and the water that he had created, he both made life and he both took away life because God is involved in his creation. And so he also showed mercy during that time where Noah and his family are preserved and they go and they repopulate the earth and it spreads. But God continues to be involved. He's continuing to be involved when he calls Abraham to start a new nation. He's continuing to be involved when he scatters people at the Tower of Babel. He's continuing to be involved as he uses people like Moses and Joshua to build a nation and to receive the commandments and to build the tabernacle and to exert uh, the influence of God's holiness on the whole planet, as was his plan from the beginning. He shows his involvement when he brings judgment through the raising up of Babylonian kings and Assyrian kings, when he raises Cyrus so that the Israelites could be released back to their homeland and get permission and government funding to rebuild the temple that was destroyed according to the judgment of God. They have to see that this is not a deist book that they're reading when they read the Old Testament. It is a God who is intimately involved with his people. And he says, if you believe that God just set things in motion and all things have continued the same since the beginning, you're crazy. You've missed it. Do not forget the prophetic predictions. 
There is a cycle that has been established in the Bible of God creating, people sinning, God bringing judgment, people repenting, God starting things anew, and then they start over, rebelling. God brings judgment. They repent, starts afresh, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. And we're going to get to the time where God brings judgment again, and that's the point that Peter's making. Jesus is coming soon, except this time he's going to honor his previous agreement, and he's not going to destroy the world with water by a flood because he put a big rainbow in the sky before and said, I'll never do that again. But he did not say he will never judge the earth again, and he did not say that he will not destroy the earth. He just said he wouldn't do it by water. This time it's coming by fire. And we're going to look at that in more detail here in just a little bit. But don't forget the prophetic predictions. The next passage is a reminder to remember the patient promises. The patient promises. Let's read verse 8 through 10. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The patient promises are seen here because Peter informs you on why Jesus has not come back yet. Which is good because as Christians, you know, 2,000 years has gone by and we've been calling it the last days for 2,000 years. And so even though there are scoffers out there saying that we're nuts and we believe the Bible and we're holding fast to those promises, deep down inside we're like, Lord, they're making fun of me. This is getting awkward. Come. You know, we're, we're feeling the tension there. Because 2,000 years is a long period of last days. But the Bible doesn't leave you without an answer to the question, why haven't you come yet? And so... It shows here, not only does it remind us that, yes, he is coming, but it reminds us why he has delayed. He starts out by saying, do not overlook this fact. That one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So first off, you need to know that God isn't sitting up in heaven bored waiting for you know some specific time and he's not up there trying to get things done in time so that we can you know uh, have a place i know jesus said i go to prepare a place for you and all that but we got to understand he's using language to just explain the fact that he's got a home for us god is not up there with all this busy work that he just can't get through in a timely manner and so we're delayed because he's not done yet that's not how god works god speaks a word and it's all done You know, he took six days to create, not because he needed six days, but just to set a pattern for humanity. He could have said, let it all be done, and it would have been done instantly. That's the kind of power God has. God is not finite like you and I. You and I have to think in terms of beginning and end. Anything that we do has a timeline where we see the beginning and we see the end of it all. But God sits outside of time as a being, and he looks down through history, seeing the beginning and the end and everything in between, all at the same time. 
because he's outside of it. Time did not exist until God created time. In fact, time only exists in its relationship to matter and space. And since matter and space didn't exist before God spoke it into existence, time didn't exist. It can't. And so you can't understand that, neither can I. We can only use words to slightly describe the predicament we're in as finite beings. But we just have to understand that God is different than we are. He's not a finite being that lives in this thing called time. He is outside of it. He is infinite, as we call him. That's why as a kid, when I sat there thinking about God's beginning, and I'd say, what did God do 100 years before creation? And then I'd say, well, what did he do 100 years before that? And then I'd think, what did he do 1,000 years before that? And what did he do a million years before that? And you keep going back, and you keep going back until your head explodes. You just got to understand that God, before the creation, wasn't sitting and waiting or doing anything because time is not a thing to him. He just is. And that's all I can say about that. But the passage says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to communicate the fact that God's not bored up there. He's not doing busy work. He's not like delayed in any sense of the word time. If he calls us home tomorrow, that whole 2,000 year time span is like seconds to him. It, it, it is no passing moment for God because he is the beginning and the end simultaneously. He's outside of it all. So just because you feel like it's been a long time means nothing to an infinite being. By the way, don't misuse that passage. I hear people pulling that passage out of context all the time. Uh, they're either trying to explain their version of the creation week or uh, trying to use it for some other purpose or agenda. When you read God's word, keep it in its context and let it speak for itself. He's talking about God's delay right here. So that's the interpretation we need to take of it. God has not forgotten us. God is not delayed. He is coming again, but time means nothing to him. That's what he's trying to get across. He even quotes it from Psalm 94, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is not concerned with time. This passage also shows us the mercy of God. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? We ask ourselves. Well, it says here that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why he is patient towards you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Uh, he is not here right now taking us to heaven or restoring the new heavens and new earth as we're going to talk about. He has not come back because he is patiently awaiting the salvation of a certain number of people. He knows in his foreknowledge that there are some that have not believed in him yet that will believe in him at some point. And so because of that fact, he has not come. He is awaiting the day of their salvation. And if you're one of those people that he's waiting on, if you're one of those people that he has foreknown, and you are going to be a part of the family of God, why put it off another day? You are interrupting my trip to heaven this afternoon by not coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ this moment. Quit being so selfish. Come to the Lord today. 
He is patiently waiting on some to believe. And look at how it describes the coming of Christ here in this final verse of this section. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He starts out by explaining that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. And man, do I know what that's like in this year, 2020. I think I've been robbed four times this year. Hundreds of dollars worth of stuff taken. Some by my own stupidity, leaving it at the river and then going back the next morning and it being taken. Yeah, okay, I'll chalk that one up as my fault. But they could have left it uh, for me for one day to see if I came back. Uh, But some stuff was stolen out of my car, as you guys know. Uh, Things get taken. Theft is a problem. And if I knew when the thief was going to come, I would have acted differently. If I knew when they were going to take things out of my car, I would have locked my car. (laughs) I always try to lock my car, but I'm sure every once in a while I forget to push the button or it just doesn't take. I would have checked it if I knew that a thief was showing up that afternoon. If you knew a thief was going to break into your house, you'd let the guard dog off the leash. If you knew a thief was going to break in, you'd have set the security cameras up or you'd have you know, cocked the gun or whatever it is that you would do if you knew the thief was going to show up that day. But the fact is, we don't know. We don't know. We take precautions. And the more I get robbed, the more precautions I guess I should take. But it's, it happens when we don't expect it. And Jesus says, that's the same way with my coming. Now, he's a little bit different than a thief. A thief looks for the opportunity when you're not looking and then shows up. Jesus isn't trying to come when everybody's looking the other direction. He's wanting everybody to keep their eyes on him. He's wanting to be the thief that you catch. He's saying, wait and watch. on, Like, watch. Stay diligent and vigilant and be aware of the fact that I'm coming again. And he's giving you the warning. But he's coming. But some of us are missing it. Because we're distracted by the things of this world and the things that don't really matter. Because we have an eternal life awaiting us. We have eternity to store up for. And we're busy being distracted by a world that really isn't that great out there. It really isn't. I know we get excited about stuff in this world. You know, we go and the mountains are beautiful. Go have fun at Disney World. Whatever. There's things out there to do. I get it. But if you really knew what was awaiting you, it it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's nothing. And yet, we get distracted by nothingness when we could be focused on everythingness in Christ. It says the earth will pass away with a loud roar. It'll pass away with a roar. Now, some commentators I read says that's describing the burning elements, you know, like a crackling fire, except we've got a fire the size of the entire earth and heavens. And so it's going to be loud in there with a lot of crackling. Uh, you're going to have planets that are pure gas going up in flames and just poof. It's like a big nuclear mushroom cloud for all to see. You know, maybe that's what's going on. But I also see other places in the Bible where The coming of Jesus Christ is associated with loud sounds. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about a loud sound. Uh, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, when they describe the coming of the Lord, it mentions a loud sound. Uh, Matthew 24 mentions a loud sound. We've got loud sounds scattered, and some of them are even defined as like the last trumpet blowing, which I think might be what's being referred to here as the last, as that loud sound, that roar. Not sure about that. That's okay. If you don't agree, we're okay. It doesn't really change the meaning here. But we do know that the coming of Jesus happens suddenly. It happens when many don't expect it. But it's not a secret coming. It's not a secret coming. That's why the whole Left Behind series thing just doesn't do it for me. And if you buy into that eschatology, whatever. We can talk about that around coffee sometime. I'd be glad to. I don't buy it, though. Because it's not a secret coming of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes where you know what happened. It is a loud roar. It is a loud trumpet. It is the last trumpet. Don't tell me the last trumpet blows and then there's seven trumpets in Revelation to go through. That's not the last trumpet. Okay, the last trumpet is the last trumpet. And when it happens, you know it and it's the end and it's too late to repent at that moment. So now is your time. Now is the time. It says that the earth and the things in it will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The word dissolved there comes from a Greek word that can mean destroyed or loosened or set free. Uh, dissolved is fine. I'm not trying to give you that to change the meaning too much. Uh, but there is a very huge theological debate that once again is not a primary matter for us. But whether the earth is completely burned up into oblivion and disappears, and then God creates a whole brand new earth and a brand new heavens, or if the current earth is purged, you know, so all the um, bad stuff, all the sin, all the evil, all of that is burned and melted away with the cosmos, and so it's sort of renovated, more or less. And, and that's where I seem to lean, even though this passage is the, probably the passage you could argue the other side um, the most from. The book of Revelation tells us that in chapter 21 and 22 that the new heavens and the new earth descend down onto the earth. So I believe that when Jesus comes, he's going to bring that loud trumpet sound and there's going to be a gathering of all the Christian people. They're going to be caught from the four winds of the earth and he is going to burn up the evil and he's going to purge out the cancers that exist in his current creation that have come here from sin and he's going to make all things new as the scriptures say and then a new heaven and a new earth are going to descend down onto the current one because i don't believe that god is giving up on his creation i believe he's renewing it and restoring it sort of like we saw in genesis chapter 6 with the flood he didn't destroy it and start afresh, but rather he renewed it, renovated it. Except this time, it's going to be in a permanent way where we get new bodies and we are no longer tempted into sin and we will be completely ruled over and reigned by Jesus Christ. That is what we are looking forward to. And so that's what I believe is happening here. But if you believe he starts fresh with a brand new heaven and earth, whatever, that's okay. doesn't change the meaning. What we get here is that God is coming and all of the evil will be purged out in some way, shape, or form. And we will be left with nothing but Christ's righteousness and all who rule and reign on the earth. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have that to look forward to. The next section of this passage, of this chapter, we see the permanent preparations. It's a reminder to remember that permanent preparations 
are being made. We saw the prophetic predictions in verse 1 through 7, the patient promises in 8 through 10, and now we're looking at permanent preparations. Let's read it. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Permanent preparations. This world will end. And so now Peter's saying, if you believe that, if you haven't been duped by the scoffers out there, and you believe that Jesus is coming back, and you believe that the things of this world will pass away, and all that you've done will actually be reflected in glory for eternity then shouldn't that change your behavior? Shouldn't that change the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act? Shouldn't there be some consequence to that faith? And the answer is yes. Yes, there should. And he says right here, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, we've talked a little bit about holiness already, but holiness is that otherness. If I asked you to define holiness right now, I might get like really good or righteous or pure. There's a lot of things you might throw out and they're all correct. But the best definition of the word holy is other, different. When God is holy, he is completely different than his creation. That's why you don't walk on holy ground with your sandals on, Moses, because we're talking about a completely different type of person here. There's no association with sandals and sin and righteousness. It's just like you're going to do something different because God is different and this is a different place. It's holy. You don't go into uh, the holy of holies unless you do it in a different way, the way God has prescribed, because God is different. He's otherworldly, completely different than his creation. There is a distinction between the creator and the creation, and we need to acknowledge that. But there's also a new distinction between those who are in this world and those who have been born again and renewed. We're kind of mixed in this world and in another world, in God's kingdom. We're a part of the kingdom of God, even though we still live in the kingdoms of this realm on earth. And so God has demanded that we be holy as he is holy. That doesn't mean you get to become God. It means you need to be more God-like and less world-like. It means that you're going to reflect his goodness, and yes, you are going to seem a little bit peculiar and strange in the world that you live in. People are going to look at you and the way you think and the way you behave. They're going to see that you don't line up with the the worldviews that are out there, that are prominent in our society. You're not going to embrace everything that they say is true when the Bible says otherwise. And so people are going to scratch their head when they're looking at you and thinking, you're kind of odd, aren't you? And the answer is yes. I kind of am. Now, some of us are peculiar and strange in a whole different type of way, and we're not going to talk about that this morning. We're talking about when you are odd because you're trying to be more godlike. That's the odd that we're talking about this morning. That's the peculiarity that is prescribed. The Bible nowhere tells you to be, you know, bizarre. 
uh, in that sense of the word, but to be God-like and different than the world. It says you're a peculiar people. You're like foreigners, exiles, walking through a strange world that you don't really belong in. And we acknowledge that. We acknowledge it. Some of you acknowledge it every time you give 10% of what you make on a Sunday morning when you come and dedicate one to two hours of your time. That's crazy talk. You could be out there hunting during that time, using that 10% for a new rifle. And you gave it away. You worked all week and gave it away. You crazy person, you. Insane. Some of you dedicate time every week to to teach people and to pray for people. You spend time with your eyes closed on your knees. That hurts, by the way. It's uncomfortable. You're on your knees with a big chart of names that you're praying over, and you're talking to a guy who died 2,000 years ago, and you think he's going to do something about it. You're crazy. The world will only see you as different and crazy, as long as you're faithful to prayer, to giving, to serving, to the things that God has called you to do. You're going to look different. And if you believe he's coming again, you better believe you'll be on your knees in prayer. If you believe that the things of this world will melt away, you better believe that you're going to be good stewards of what God has entrusted you with. If you believe that the things of this earth won't amount to anything in the future because they will dissipate and be dissolved and destroyed, then you better believe Christian service is going to be on the forefront of your mind. Don't be distracted by the things that don't last. Invest in the things that never end. Permanent preparations through holiness and godliness. And then he goes on to say this. He says here in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You are supposed to be waiting for Christ's coming. And when I say waiting, and the Bible uses the word waiting, like it does in Isaiah 40 that says they who wait on the Lord, it doesn't mean sitting there doing nothing. It doesn't mean waiting on like when your wife is cooking dinner and you're sitting there like, man, I wish she'd hurry this up. I'm hungry. That's not the waiting we're talking about. We're not talking about your show that comes on at 6 p.m. tonight and you're waiting for it to come around and the way that you're waiting is by doing nothing. We're not talking about waiting on things where you just sit there aggravated, hoping that it will come quicker. That's not what the word waiting means. Waiting might be more like your waitress who waits on you at a table and she is like working and bringing things to you or maybe it's like this this is the best analogy i can think of right now i've done some trips well pretty much all you alaskans that have traveled out of state you fly at ungodly hours and you land in airports when they're really not happy that you're there because they'd rather just shut down because nobody else is there and so you arrive at 2 a.m or whatever and uh you need to get to your hotel. And so I call up my hotel. I could call an Uber or a taxi, but the only thing that's more important to me than sleep is saving that money. And so I get the free hotel shuttle. I booked the hotel because they offered the free hotel shuttle. That's been a mistake many times. Didn't even get my free hotel shuttle. Anyways, tangent, go back. You call the hotel and you say, hey, it's 2 a.m. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Come pick me up. And they say, okay, Mr. Crawford, uh, we have a driver, they'll be there sometime between 30 minutes and six hours. 
I'm like, okay, I'll be waiting. And here's how I'm waiting. I'm sitting on the bench, and then I see headlights in the middle of the night coming around the corner. And I get up, and I walk down there because they parked a mile away. And I said, maybe that's the person looking for me. And I go, and I look, and nope, that's not the Clarion Inn. That's the Motel 6. So I go back to my spot, and I'm waiting. And then 15 minutes later, another one pulls around that's white, and I think, oh, maybe that's the one I'm looking for. And I go, and I look, and it's unmarked, and so I knock on the window. Sir, sir, are you here for me? Nope, not me. I'm here for that other guy that got there way after you, but yet I'm here to pick him up three minutes later so he can go to bed. Okay, I get it. So I go back, and finally I call again. I call, and I say, hey, you said you had a place for me. You said you were coming for me. Pick me up. Like, oh, yeah, he just had a smoke break. He'll be there in a minute. Uh, he'll be there to get you, I promise. And then, you know, eventually they come and they get me. And when I see him and I know that they're there for me, I want to just jump up and do the heel click and, you know, whoop and holler because I have a place that I can rest. I have a place I can rest. That's the type of waiting we're talking about. Jesus is coming. We don't know when, but he said to wait. And some of you aren't even looking. It's going to pass right by. You're not checking the signs around you. You're not calling and say, hey, are you coming? Because you can call. You can call and say, hey, are you coming? You said you were coming. I'm waiting diligently in godliness and holiness. I'm waiting. Are you coming? And God says it's okay to do that. That's called prayer. You, you pray, God, are you going to come get me? Because I need rest, eternal rest. I'm tired. I'm weary. I need the rest that my soul thirsts for. And one day, that shuttle's coming. That shuttle's called Jesus Christ, and those who are found in him will face no condemnation, but they will experience eternal rest and salvation for their soul. But some of us are distracted by things that don't matter. We're looking at this gum on the bottom of the seat outside, and we miss our caravan that goes by that would have taken us to a soft bed all for old, chewed-up, nasty gum or something equivalent to that. That's what this world has to offer us. Nothing. But Christ offers us rest. It not only says waiting here, it says hastening. It's like hastening, what does that mean? That means you have a part to play in how quick Jesus comes. You know, I don't have that kind of power. Well, he said you did. He says your righteousness, your godliness and holiness will hasten the day of the Lord. Acts 3, 19 through 20 says, Repent, therefore, turn back, and your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus it says, repent, turn from your sins so that he can send Jesus. You see, Jesus is there. Jesus might be just ready to go. You know, God's just holding him back. He's like, I'm waiting. There's repentance that needs to happen at College Heights Church today. If they would just repent today, today would be the day. And you could come on the clouds, blowing the trumpet, all in your radiant glory to bring your saints home to the perfect place of rest and peace. And someone here is holding me up. I'm outside the airport waiting to get to my bed and you selfish, unrepentant sinners aren't giving me my rest. Don't do that. Because I promise you, there's nothing in this life that I want more than to go be with Jesus. And I pray that that's your thought. That's your mentality. You see, I've got things that should want what should incline me to want to stay here 
you know, I've got a baby due in November, and we're already seeing him just kick the tar out of Katie from the inside. I mean, legs going out. Usually, like, people shouldn't have to go through that, but, you know, I, I usually have some big legs in the family. Isaac, he can kick a ball really far, so he started young, and uh, this baby's looking like it's going to be the same. I'm excited as can be. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I, I'm going to miss, probably, if the baby comes on time, I'm going to miss Thanksgiving this year, which I'm excited about Thanksgiving. Uh, but the baby's due. The bun comes out of the oven Thanksgiving Day on the dot. Um, and so I'm like, whatever, I don't care. I'll skip turkey uh, for this baby. I'll skip, you know, disc golf for this baby. I'll skip anything for this baby. Anything. But if you gave me the option right now, to wait out to meet this baby or for Jesus to come this hour, I don't even have to think about it. It's not a thought. Jesus coming. Now, I know that far surpasses the joy of a parent receiving a new baby. And there are few joys that are better than that, if any. There are few joys better than holding a precious baby in your hand that you've never met before and looking at the innocence and the perfection and the beauty of God's handiwork. But I know that Christ's coming will far surpass that. So why would I wait and linger in a world? I, I'm not assured that that baby will be born healthy and alive. I don't know that. So why would I wait? You don't know if your loved one is going to pass away tomorrow. You don't know. So why wait and linger here where so much can go wrong when when Christ shows up, I have full faith and confidence that that baby will be there anyways. Right there in God's kingdom. So I'll meet him either way. But there's nothing that should delay our anticipation for the Lord. There's nothing that should cause us to put that on the back burner as, Lord, just hold off for another few months. That vacation I'm taking is really going to be fun. I'd like you to come like the day after that. No, that's foolishness. That's ridiculous. There's one thing that should hinder our anticipation. There's one thing that should cause us not to have Jesus come back right now. And it shows up in the final section here. When we're looking at the present precautions, the present precautions in verse 14 through 18, it reads, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You see, Jesus hasn't come back yet because there's one thing more important to Jesus than coming again. And that's the same thing that should be more important to us than Jesus coming again. And that's the salvation of lost people who won't get to be in eternity with him if he comes back right now. We've already covered that. He's waiting patiently for others to be saved. And so the only reason I do not want Jesus to come back right this second is because there might be someone that's on the verge of making a decision for Christ. Now, he's not always going to hold out, and I don't know how the mind of God works. I don't know if God sees a time. I know in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that the coming of the Lord happens after the great falling away. So I don't know if that's a period where God looks out there and says, I know that there will be no more conversions, and so he comes back. I don't know if that's what that's talking about or not. I think it's highly likely. Uh, but if there is one more person who is going to come to Christ, then we need to delay the coming. It's like a no, no soul left behind policy. And Jesus is going to wait until that soul 
is redeemed. And then he comes. Which tells me that if I really want Jesus to come back, if that's important to me as I say it is, then I need to be sharing the word of God with other people. I need to be missionally minded and evangelistic so that other people will come to Christ, repent and turn from their sins. So as Acts 3 says, God can send his son back down here to save us from the chaos and the commotion that we're living in day after day. It's nuts out there. So let's win people to Christ so that we can get this show on the road and get this over with. So we can enter into an eternity of God's radiant glory and nothing but bliss shooting out at us without even the presence of a sun, his pure light flowing through the cosmos so that all can see and experience and just bask in. That's what we're looking forward to. And yet we've got distracted by a world that quite frankly stinks. Let's be about the gospel. Let's share the good news with people. Kenny Chesney wrote a song that also stinks. You might think, oh, <laughs> go figure, huh? Did I get an amen? Uh, he wrote this song that says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Well, first off, he has never met me because I want to go right now. Second of all, shame on you if you want to go to heaven, but you don't go right now. If you want to go to heaven, but you don't want to go right now, then you don't understand heaven. You don't fully understand. You think that the good thing in your life is going to be better than heaven. And so you just want to get that one good thing out of the way. It, it doesn't compare, people. It doesn't compare. He tells us to conclude this chapter and the book. Keep on reading here. It says in verse 15, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In the present precautions, he warns us not to get distracted and to be misled by ignorant, unstable men. And then he goes on to say, for you to not lose your own stability there in verse 17. You can be unstable, spiritually speaking. James compares it to being tossed to and fro on the ocean. You know, someone who... Uh, wants wisdom, but they don't ask from it from God. They think God can give it, but they're double-minded in that. They're, they're wavering in their faith. They believe God one day, doubt Him the next. They don't hold true to His promises, and they buy into the scoffers of the world. He says, you're unstable. In fact, James says twice in his book that a double-minded double man is unstable in all his ways. Peter's using that same language, and he reverts back to Paul. So Peter knew of Paul's writings they were circulating at the time of the early church. And so he had already picked up that Paul is preaching the same message as Peter. That people are being led astray. They are becoming unstable in the faith. I don't want to be unstable. 
I want my faith to be rooted on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. And I want that for you as a Bible-believing church. But many are being tossed to and fro. Peter already referred to them as followers of Balaam. Because Balaam wanted to serve God with one foot, but he wanted to please the world with another. And he was always trying to straddle the fence. And you cannot do that as a Christian and be considered stable. That's called an immature faith. And you cannot have this immature faith right now at this time. We need mature believers to stand up and lead the charge for the kingdom of God, for Christ. Do not get carried away by lawless people because the love of God is at stake here. When God comes back, when he sends his son and he makes all things new, we are going to experience the love of God in a way that we have never experienced before. Day by day, hour by hour. And we hasten that through our evangelism and our holiness and our godliness. And so this is a phrase I don't use hardly ever because it's usually used in a way that's sacrilegious. But I'll use it right now because it's appropriate and I mean every word. For the love of God, hasten the kingdom. Be holy as he is holy. Because as you are holy and as you are godly and as you are missional and evangelistic, the love of God is approaching and will consume us in the eschaton for eternity. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this day and for your word. Lord, we pray that as we leave this building this morning and this group of believers, Lord, that you would prick our hearts and, Lord, you would push us and compel us to go and be people of the word who respond to your message. We don't just hear it and sit down on it and ignore it. We're not apathetic to it, but Lord, we're a people who, who take your word and we live it out. I pray this morning that you would just stir in our hearts and minds this reminder from the gospel of Peter, from his epistle. Lord, that we would go and that we would be diligent and that we would not forget that you are coming again. And may that drive us to a bold faith. A faith that does not care about scoffers and mockers. It doesn't care about the laughing and the ridiculing that may go on. It does not care about the fact that we might be considered odd or peculiar because we are odd and peculiar as long as this world tarries. Lord, give us the boldness that we need to be faithful and true to your commandments. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to stand. And as we sing our invitation together, it's your time of response.
Thank you all for being here uh, this morning. We're going to close. Uh, you may be seated. We've got a quick video announcement uh, that'll be on the screen. And, and then after that, Kenny, if you would pray us out of here and dismissal. Hey there, I'm Hannah. Welcome to College Heights. Uh, we are so glad that you decided to spend part of your weekend with us. And I just have a few quick announcements to share. Daniel Marr is flying to Washington State this week to see the McCullough family. If you have been at our church for a while, you probably remember them, know them, love them. They were such an important part of our church family for years and years, and they have recently moved. So Daniel would love to put together a fish box to take down there to just show them some love from their College Heights family. So if you have any fish and would like to send that with them, please bring it um, to the church by tomorrow. You can drop it off in the office tomorrow or connect with Daniel and he can get it from you. But we just want to show them some love that way. This Friday at 6.30, we are having a worship night at Hidden Lake. So we'll have a message, dinner provided by the fellowship team, worship, games, fun. It'll be great. Everyone's invited. It'll just be a really fun way to get out and enjoy the last little bit of summer since it's starting to cool down, at least where you are, where I am. It is still very hot, unfortunately. But that's at 6.30 this Friday night at Hidden Lake. And if you want to camp, just let Daniel Marr know, and he was he's trying to make sure that we get enough campsites reserved for overnight camping, but you do not have to camp. Just come for the evening if you want to, but we still need you to RSVP. Sign up on the Connect Wall so the fellowship team knows how much food to bring. So that's going to be awesome. Definitely make it if you can. Third, um, Dave Peterson and our deacons are really wanting to put together a accurate, up-to-date church directory that has everyone's information and a photo. So if everyone who is a part of our church family can take a photo of yourself and your household in front of a plain light colored wall um, and send that to Dave, I'll put his phone number on the screen right here, along with your names, mailing address, email address, and phone number. And that's just going to be a good way for the deacons to be able to intentionally reach out to everybody, be able to put faces and names together, and just kind of have a good accurate grasp of who all is part of our church family at College Heights right now. So we're going to be talking about this over the coming months, trying to put it together. We're excited about it. So that's a little bit of what we have going on. As always, you can find all this information and more on our Facebook page and sign up for our email list at bit.ly slash chbcconnect and you'll get an email every Sunday after church with the discussion questions from the sermon and any other announcements and pertinent info that we have. So there we have it. Have a great week.